0: Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Johnny Jewell, the founder of Italians Do It Better, the incredible record label. He is a film composer. He's worked with David Lynch on Twin Peaks for a ton. His music is featured in Drive and Bronson. And he's got many projects. Desire, Chromatics, Glass Candy, Mirage. He's super prolific. I've always been fascinated by him. The Italians Do a Better artwork is incredible. And they were one of the real pioneers combining that Tangerine Dream kind of ethereal soundtrack, Italian disco and dance music. Really fascinating guy. And we got to chat for an hour going through his career from starting out in DIY punk projects, starting his own label, being fired from a grocery store to working with David Lynch. So it's a good one. Here's me and Johnny Jewel. start at the beginning what did you grow up watching what were you listening to and what made an impression on you as a teenager
1: well uh skipping into the teenage years uh my first girlfriend was from england and she had an older sister and she would come back with tapes so i got turned on to a lot of music through her and her sister and that's that's when i first heard Things like the Smiths and Janet uh, O'Connor and House Martins and things like that. Um, I was really interested in a lot of the European and UK dance music through them. So that had a that had a big impression. I grew up in Houston, so I was completely surrounded by country western, like folk music and bluegrass and things like that. Um, and movie wise, started getting into horror around 13, 14, you know, Mm -hmm. renting movies like, you know, the shining and clockwork orange and, you know, all the, the entry level things that they would have at the VHS store in Texas in the eighties, um, started getting, uh, Started noticing the use of music in films uh, through Kubrick. Mm-hmm. I would say it was the first time that I consciously realized uh, that there was a level of intention behind what was being placed as opposed to just being swept up like when I was younger being swept up in the whole fantasy of the, the movie or the TV show or whatever. Um, that's when I think the 2001 edit from the the hurling bone into the spaceship
2: yeah the first time that i
1: was aware of the the subjective editing power and how it can uh, the metaphors that could be made through sequences images and sound or in that case the lack of sound was really powerful the vacuum and that got me kind of going into buying soundtracks and uh, anything I could sort of find, obviously this is pre-internet, um, Any anything I could find at the record stores. Um, was really interested in painting as well. So that kind of pushed me into the New York art scene, uh, discovering Warhol. And as a result of being a huge fan of Warhol, that led me to the Velvet Underground. And then through that, Nico and John Cale and uh, more exper- more experimental, uh, experimental music. Um, and then always was really, really drawn to negative space
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is why I, I really liked experimental music and which is why I really like the music in film. Um, I also really was very impressed by the you know, from the mid 60s to the early 80s the the use of metallics you know bells and uh, metal percussion, chimes, organs, mm-hmm. things like that things are really bright so um, th- th- that had a big impact on me sonically
0: And what? instrument? What was the first instrument you started playing?
1: The very first thing I tried was piano because we we had one in my house, my mom played organ and piano at the church. Um, you know, when I was in the womb, there was mm-hmm. she's always on the organ. Right. Um, and then um, my household wasn't really open to secular music. So, um, I kind of had a, got off to a bumpy start with music because we, we weren't really allowed in the early years to listen to music that wasn't Christian music.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there there is some good Christian music, but uh, for the most part, I was not that interested in it. But I did really like music and my older brother was a musician. So as a way of kind of being rebellious or wanting to make my own way, I kind of had this secret love of music because I didn't want to be just following my brother.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, toyed, I toyed with piano a bit. We had the Liberace songbook that's for beginners to try to teach you how to play piano. And um, I really didn't like the structure of anything to do with piano lessons or uh, reading music or anything like that, I just really did not like. So I set it down about, uh, around the age of seven or eight. Didn't really come back to it. You know, occasionally would mess with the piano because it's always there. Um, but I think when I really first had an active interest in like a new era of music was
2: mm-hmm.
1: around 13 or 14, I got a guitar from a thrift shop um, and taught myself how to play guitar. And the guitar only had four strings on it, and I wasn't—I had no knowledge of how you're supposed to play guitar. And so I—I played by uh, not playing chords, more
0: like a bass. And what did you get—an electric or an acoustic? It was acoustic. Right. And uh, like a big
1: hollow—I don't know the name for it, but it's a really big, almost like a Mexican bass guitar. Um. It was very deep, the tones, and uh, for the first two or three weeks, I was very frustrated because I hadn't realized that you're supposed to play between the frets.
0: Oh, right.
1: So I was only playing on the lines, and uh, it would rattle. It, would just, it was really hard to sustain a note. And then I had an epiphany one day when I realized that <laughs> if you play between the bars to sustain this better. And so, I mean, that kind of is just my general approach, and everything is just trying to make fire out of sticks, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I never read the manuals. I have no training. Um, I can barely use modern technology. I've I've had to learn a little bit in order to work with film editors, but generally, I, my my process is pretty primitive.
0: And what was your first band? Was Glass Candy your first outfit? That's the first
1: time that I released anything publicly as a group. I had released solo records from 92 to 96. Some cassettes and like double LP, single LP. Um, And then Glass Candy. We started in 1996 when I moved to Portland and met Ida. And in April of 99, we released our first 7-inch. And that was like the sort of beginning of this world now.
0: Yeah. I remember I found Johnny, are you queer on a rough trade compilation from stuff they were playing in in store. I think that was the intent of a compilation.
1: I don't think I'm aware of the compilation, but um, we did the song because in 2000, we played a show in Seattle and there was a, it was a drag show and there was a, drag queen called Ursula Android, who had <laughs> performed the song. And uh, we were just completely blown away. And then I asked her, I was, I was like, Hey, can do you mind if we cover it? You know, when she glass candy, and we just, we did it for that. And we did a kind of a Shangri-La style version of it, mixed with heartbreakers.
0: So how did you guys move from that kind of new wave punk sound into the synth and Italia disco kind of side of things? How did that morph?
1: Well, when I first met Ida, I was primarily focusing on synthesizer stuff. And uh, she was a little bit interested in that. And so early iterations of Glass Candy prior to that seven inch were more synth-based. And there's drum machine on the first seven-inch. Um, there's a little bit of synth, but it's layered in. Um, on the, we did a tour in the early 2000s where the we played a house party in Philadelphia. And it was a really, really wild upstairs townhouse. and. We got pig-piled by, in the first song, like pig-piled by the audience, and the everybody just jumped on top of us for fun. Mm-hmm. But what happened was it broke my, I was laying on the floor underneath about 10 people, and it broke my guitar across my chest. So I I had a cracked rib for the rest of the tour and no guitar and no money. And we, we borrowed stuff, like we borrowed gear to complete the tour and all that, but it was really like, you know, we're making $50 a show or something, just gas money and sleeping on the yeah. floor. And uh, when I got back, I couldn't afford to fix the guitar, but I still had synthesizers. And that was around Love, of Love, Love era and 2002, 2003. Then I made, uh, I'd made the conscious decision to shift to drum machine and synthesizer full time. And that took a few years to sort of explore what that would, how that would integrate. And I used my 2003 tax return to buy a a drum machine and a polyphonic synthesizer. Um, And then we started releasing a bunch of four CDs and things like that, uh, sort of exploring. Like I was trying to figure out how to program and how to produce and I had graduated to Team track. And uh, took about four or five years to sort of learn everything and, and develop. And, you know, we we're both working full time at a grocery store. So it's like everything was moving at a really slow pace.
0: And when did beatbox come about? That's 2007 in the fall.
1: Or I think it's September. Um, we had agreed to do a tour with this fan architecture in Helsinki from Australia
2: Done mm-hmm.
1: their their US dates and I rushed two or three days before we hit the road to meet them in Minneapolis um just on no sleep and I, I ended up getting sick from just not resting but I had to finish the mix and then we were burning EDs off of a laptop in the car on the drive there just to be able to sell it shows
0: really that's a, that's still my favorite uh Italians release that whole the sound of that record is just incredible.
1: Oh, it's amazing. It's a, a classic for sure.
0: The synth sounds on that record are just incredible. They're so thick. I was wondering what you were taking reference from or inspired by for that, the tone and feel of that record.
1: We, we had been touring a lot. So I grab records on every town when we had time and I was buying a lot of, uh, Freestyle, style 12 inches, like maxi mixes and drum apellas and things like that. Um, and also really getting into cosmic disco and old, the 70s sort of synth exploration records as well as, you know, I mean, the movie soundtracks never went away, uh, but that was, you know, there's a lot of Goblin and John Carpenter and things like that in the mix.
0: And when did you start Italian's Do It Better? I know you said you just wanted to do things at your own pace and not be worried by deadlines or completing things and everything like that. That was, the decision
1: to do it was in 2005 and then it began in 2006. Before then I had been self-released as well. So it was, I had tried to do a, a record on a label and I wasn't really into the process.
0: Were you still at the grocery store or were you a full-time musician at this point?
1: At the time that Italians began, I was a full-time musician, but there was no no money. I got fired uh, from the grocery store because I was on tour and uh, I was gone too long on tour and they changed the rules of how long you could take a vacation consecutively Mm -hmm. because I'd been working there for almost 10 years, so I had four weeks a year saved up and that's what we would do the national tours on. And so I'd take, I'd bookend it by working a bunch of days in a row and then taking time off. So we could be gone about five and a half weeks and we used to have a answering machine on a cassette which you could call from the road and like hear your messages. And Mm -hmm. I got a message that my boss wanted me to, he's like, Hey, sorry, they changed the rules. Like, we you have to come in and work one shift and then you can go back on tour, but it was impossible because we had about a hundred dollars. And there's no way I could fly home just to do one shift. It wasn't that, you know, we weren't flying at all at that point. Mm-hmm. So I lost the job, which was really crushing. And then uh, I decided to take the plunge full time with music, which meant selling equipment and records and things like that just to pay studio rent,
2: mm-hmm.
1: buy tapes. And then, uh, you know, lost electricity, no heating in the winter, things like that. It was really rough. And then around 2007, things sort of popped off, but it was, you know, it was never really, never been the goal to succeed in that way. The goal has always been to explore. So I was, even though things were difficult, I was happy because I was able to just record so much.
0: And when does Chromax and Desireform, when do you start having multi groups? at the same time chromatics
1: formed in 2001 i recorded the first record um that band formed after another band broke up after they saw glass candy perform and wanted to do something a little different more minimal like how glass candy was doing um and then that i joined full time in 2004 after seven or eight other people had quit and Desire came around the very beginning of the end of 2008, the very beginning of 2009. And prior to that, started working with Farah in 2005, started doing Mirage in 2006, and, you know, continued through all of this recording solo work. So it's always been just a lot of different things going on. And I, I often record without any specific band or goal in mind, I just record.
0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Mubi, a great streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover with Mubi. Every film is handpicked. I've been a Mubi subscriber for years and I'm going to give you three of my favorites from the Mubi UK platform. So let's dig in. oh man they've got the cement garden based on the brilliant Ian McEwan book about a brother and sister who are living together as teenagers after their parents die and I remember they're in this beautiful big mansion and things get personal and intimate between the brother and sister That movie had a big effect on me when I was a teenager. Not in that way. And yeah, that's my first recommendation. Start there. Stranger by the Lake from 2013. I love this movie. It's set in a cruising spot for men tucked away by the lake where our main character begins to hook up with another guy, but there is a killer In the area who is killing a lot of the gay men who go there to hook up and we don't know it It could be the guy our main character is hooking up with but what made this film so incredible is it's all shot with natural light and there's as the film gets darker there's all these like blind spots on the screen where you can't really see what's happening Or is someone emerging from the bushes and things like that? And it just makes things really intense and scary. Although it's very naturalistic. That film was fantastic. Definitely do that. Okay, thirdly, Lockie. I love this movie. Literally a gripping thriller with, what's his name? Why have I got this guy? Hot guy. Tom Hardy. It's Tom Hardy in a car, a solo performance, and it's just him driving home and taking phone calls, and it's so intense, and it's a great example that you can make a movie about anywhere and about anything, but if you got a vision, the movie's going to be good. So yeah, there we go. Cement Garden, Stranger by the Lake, Lockie top three recommendations you can watch these free and more for 30 days free just go to movie.com slash deeper into movies that's movie.com slash deeper into movies for a whole month of great cinema for free How do you keep all the plates spinning and what do you get from each different outfit each of them have their own kind of you know identity and vibe and tone I was wondering how you keep everything in line well it's the same as you know
1: working on films or doing graphic art or doing photography or editing videos everything feeds everything so I work on something and If I feel like I'm hitting a wall, I don't want to force it. So I just set it down, work on something else and just turn the page and then eventually come back to that weeks or months later and hear it differently. You know, so I work alone primarily. So time is my biggest collaborator. So the more distance I have with something, when I come back to it with different experience or a different vantage point, that's a big part of my process for Building and deconstructing and uh refining.
0: All your groups are led by women. Why you was drawn to the female voice?
1: I work with men too, but uh I think it's a lot has to do with coincidence, it's just people I was around who wanted to sing. And I've seen that, you know, a little bit, you know, for the purpose of writing and you know, writing lyrics and everything, but um, has a lot to do with with just proximity of who's in my really small circle
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, when i first met megan from desire there wasn't a plan you know and then i heard her thing and then it was like oh okay this is the possibility let's try this and i had already been writing desire material and i already had the desire name but i just didn't know what it was for like i said earlier i just always write and i file things. Um, I'm fascinated by things that are different than me.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, I'm not female, so it's interesting for me. I like the the vocal register, how it sits against bass. But, you know, I think just uh, one of the things I'm drawn to, and I don't question it or really spend too much time thinking about
0: why. And do you have a background in graphic design? All your artwork and visual identity is so incredible.
1: Zero background. It's the same as not wanting to read the piano book, you know, um, self-taught. I never went to college. There was no, there was no money for college, which is why I got a job at a grocery store. Um, I just learned by being a fan of typography and You know, I spent a lot of years painting and that kind of established the visual rhythm and rules and logic. And for me, you know, the the visuals aren't necessarily connected to the music, but it's important for me to do visual art uh, and take a break from music. It's a big part of the process.
0: Do you have favorite album covers? What are the kind of things that blew you away?
1: Well, I love, I mean, there's, there's so many amazing covers and nothing's a direct influence, but I love all the jazz record covers and, and reggae record covers. The typography on reggae is always really bold and daring
2: mm-hmm. and uh,
1: very experimental and playful at the same time. Um, I love things that are really high impact, things that are minimal, bold, uh, obscure
0: are you seeing everything digital or are you using like photoshop packages is, is that something you
1: I don't know how to use photoshop and I don't have it do um, everything on copiers like copy shop right and then uh, and then I scan it and translate it into digital and I've learned how to use illustrator just for the purpose of laying out scans of, of physical Mm-hmm. For social media, it's a little bit more digital because it's it's uh, ephemeral.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the the text all lives in the on paper first.
0: When did you meet Nicholas Winding Raffin? Was that around Bronson?
1: No, I didn't meet him for Bronson. I met him in person in L.A. in I think it was October of 2010. We're playing a show and. Uh, Ryan and Nick and Matt Newman, his editor came and a few of the producers from drive. They all came to the show and then we spent a couple of hours hanging out afterwards, talking about music and and movies and things like that. And they told me about the drive project and they were still location scouting. They were about to start shooting or three weeks from then. And then we met up again um, in Montreal when he had a, almost final version of the film. He flew to Montreal from Copenhagen, and uh, we rented out the Technicolor studio there We watched it on the big screen.
0: Looking back, it's crazy. That film has such a st- almost stoned, abstract vibe to it, and it's so sensory that it's such an achievement that that film made such a mainstream cultural impact. It's
1: It's a real mystery as to why, you know, Perfect timing, perfect storm. Yeah, great, great ideas, great music, great cinematography. It's just one of those things. That's part of the beauty of it. We'll never really understand why. You know, when I when I was working on it, I was, you know, there was a there was an impact from Bronson, but it wasn't much, especially in the United States. I think there was a bigger impact in the UK, um, and there was two different release dates, like the, the American version came out after UK version. And I remember the difference in how many messages I got from people in Europe and UK versus mm-hmm. US on the, on the different release dates. And so everybody sort of thought it was going to be another type of thing like that, a cult movie, art house, but nobody had any clue that it was going to be so popular. The soundtrack came out before the film. And when the soundtrack came out, it didn't do anything. And then after the film came out, then the soundtrack started charting. And it was, it was at the same time that Kanye and JC had the throne out and we were on top of, we were on top of that album, which is crazy for a soundtrack to be on top of a pop album. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it just stayed there and it's still there, you know, it's a monumental
0: yeah, I like Raffin. He's such an unusual guy. We interviewed him years ago, and he has such a, yeah, a really unique brain. He kind of talks in riddles, but I really like him. Very abstract approach to filmmaking.
1: Have you seen Copenhagen Cowboys?
0: No, I've seen, I saw the Too Young to Die, which I really liked, but I haven't watched his new series yet. I need
1: to catch up on it as well. I've been I've been too busy preparing for these tours. But yeah, we're we're huge fans.
0: Yeah, I thought Neon Demon was fantastic. That's maybe my favorite thing he's done.
1: Oh, yeah, I saw that nine times in the theater when it came out. I just kept going, and I I saw them presented at Cinerama as well uh, with piano and everything in L.A. That was fun.
0: Yeah, we were doing some screenings for his By NWR series where, you know, he just collects really super strange, like, below B-movie films and restores them and just basically uses all his fashion advert money just to fund these restorations for super strange movies, which we really respect. That's amazing. What is your approach to composing for film? Do you do you play along? To, I, I know Miles Davis used to play along to the movie and respond to it. I was just wondering what your approach is. Depends on the scene.
1: The uh, Are you talking about the lift to the scaffold?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember that amazing photo of when he used to bring in a screen and play along.
1: He had written everything before them, though, and he was basing his improvisations on themes. Ah, uh, he went in. He went in with quite a bit of material. I did. Uh, I worked on a film where that was one of the key reference points. Was that soundtrack? So I dove really deep into into that, and that, that music is just completely amazing. And he had uh, on a lot of the takes. He had skin from his lips falling off and you can hear it in the trumpet this um, it's phenomenal phenomenal record and they just reissued or they released the, the the entire recording sessions have you heard that
0: no I haven't
1: they there's there's multiple takes of of each piece there's a double album that came out a few years ago um, it's really good it's worth checking out there's something about the ones that were used in the film there you can just hear it. it's like really pure magic. But for me approaching, there's, there's I had a director one time ask me to do a sit-in uh, and work through the film live with a the piano.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they had been inspired by Dead Man, you know, the Neil Young
0: score? Yeah, it's amazing score, yeah. Because Neil
1: Young had done a proper score, and then it wasn't clicking for whatever reason. And then they had him improvise with a cut of the film. And uh, they ended up using a lot of that. So this director was really inspired by that idea. And I did that. And there were some pieces that worked. I'll do that. Occasionally for. scenes that are really emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, But for action scenes or things that are more syncopated or that require some sort of. uh, Anchored backdrop. Uh, I'll work without picture and I prefer to start with the script and I, I prefer to start as early on as possible as opposed to picture lock.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So whenever I have the opportunity to do that, I always really enjoy that. It's a lot more work and takes a lot more time, but um, I, I think the result is better. When you have the ability to develop a language tonically with the editor and the director as you go. And in an all time ideal scenario, they're using temp that you've made on set in the dailies, you know, to get to sort of get the vibe and sort of see what's working and what's not. And that's always really good when you could do that. And for just the day to day working on something, I keep a very open mind and try not to be precious about anything and just I always prefer to send more music than is needed and then try hitting a scene multiple, multiple ways and not necessarily assuming that this scene has to be this one arc. Like what if we invert it? What if we shift it? What if it's more emotional than Tense. What if it's more mm-hmm. tense than emotional? Uh, just really depending on... When I'm making my first impression, it's what I think happening with the characters or the story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it's up to the director to decide what they really want to say in the scene for the good of the larger story. And sometimes they are not sure, and sometimes they are 100% sure of what they want. So it varies, like how you approach it really depends on what the intention of the scene is.
0: This is a random question, but it's, I I'm, I've been given my own radio online radio show and I remembered on SoundCloud, you released a, a mixtape and it had a version of love on a real train on it. And I'm wondering, can you remember what version that was? Because I'm some how I remember it being a live version or a alternate cut than the one that's on the soundtrack, but I could be completely wrong on this. It's those mixes that I made,
1: they're all altered by me. They're all edited.
0: Oh, that's why it doesn't right. And it's
1: so I edited some some of the tracks I actually added music to on top of. Um, and I believe, I believe it's the version from the film, not the sound. I think I recorded the version from the film to work from it, and not the soundtrack version, and not the live version. Definitely, I don't, I don't think it's the live version. It's been a while. That was ten, eleven years ago.
0: Yeah, I love that you had that really haunting track by Patty Waters that I always loved.
1: Oh, I'm, a, I'm a huge Patty Waters fan.
0: Yeah, but uh, Moon don't come out tonight. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, that was a great mix. That's such a vibe. Um, this is something I've always wanted to know because it's always been really inspiring. That I remember years ago, before I started programming movies, I was freelance music journalist, and I spoke to Alexis about interviewing you, and. Your schedule was too busy, but you guys sent out such a big care package of posters, vinyl, slip mat. And I was like, wow, this is a lot guys. And then it's something you do quite often, just giving away vinyl and such, which is hugely generous and expensive.
1: Yeah. But the, for, the way the Italians works is the, the records are there to share and they're not, It's such a small market. They're not there to be on the shelves at Walmart, you know. Um, And we we love to share. And I think that making that connection with people who are interested in what you're doing is essential. And it's a core value of Italians Do It Better. And that's informed by my own personal experience as a teenager, mail-ordering records. You know, living in Texas, a lot of things weren't available locally and I would write these record companies and I think they had pity on me (laughs) and they they would send me free stuff and it has such a large effect on me and and my love of the music that I I always wanted to reciprocate that and and put that back out into the world.
0: Yeah, that's so nice. I remember when we decided, fuck it, we program films, but who's to say we can't put on bands as well. And Dave Parho was looking for a show. And we booked him. And then a week later, he sent me a postcard like, thanks for booking me. I really appreciate this. And I was like, you know, you're Dave Paho, right? You know, you're Paho of Slint, Tortoise, whatever. This is a huge honor for us. But he was like, yeah, but in the hardcore days, we'd always send each other postcards or thank yous or if a band wrote you, you wrote them back. So I just continue uh, that tradition, which is really pure.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I I was mail ordering Slint from Touch and Go Direct, you know, in Texas, and uh, it's totally from that. I come from the same culture of of that thing where you would put something in the package, and it's sort of this message message in a bottle, and it's really organic way of spreading music in the underground in this grassroots meaningful way, oh. and also just being thankful and gracious for. No matter who you are, just the opportunity to just share music. Music is a luxury,
0: mm-hmm. you know.
1: We're very, we're very lucky to be able to do the things that we're doing. We never take it for granted.
0: Yeah, we carried that forward. We always started sticking in DVDs and posters or film books in every package now, because obviously we're, I'm just, we're just obsessive geeky collectors. So if we ever need to downsize, we'll just start recycling dvds or putting out physical media back out into the world
1: yeah that's great
0: how was working with david lynch did you get to talk to him much when you were doing twin peaks
1: twin peaks was it began through dean hurley his music guy who works with him on uh all his solo records yeah and dean was tasked with as music supervision getting bands in front of david for possible appearances at the roadhouse and dean reached out to me uh, we started talking about what would it be like if chromatics performed at the roadhouse and started thinking about that and once i had dean on on the line i was like what is going on with the score mm-hmm. you know and there's a lot of it's like a patchwork of different things so I began sending music in the hopes of it getting in front of David and him responding to it so it was unsolicited and I just you know I'm such a huge fan and the Twin Peaks has been such a big part of my life you know watching on tv as a teenager and just really those seeds being planted I wanted to do anything I could to help facilitate the new series So, I just sent a massive amount of music and gave David carte blanche. And I know that, you know, autonomy is big, and I know that he needs to not be boxed in. So, Mm -hmm. like, here's the stems, here's the music, use it however you want, no strings attached, you know, manipulate it, slow it down, play it backwards, re edit it, whatever you want to do. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: uh, it was, a dream to be able to land some music in that and to be a part of that project in addition to doing you know we backed julie cruz and we we had two performances at the roadhouse in addition to that so it was just completely amazing and then um and then later i mixed a I mixed a record with dean in his studio asymmetrical there um, a georgia chalmers record who's uh, she's Brian Ferry's saxophonist. Right. Um, she's actually joining me for Windswept, the theme from Twin Peaks, uh, at the, the South Bank show. She's going to be playing the saxophone live. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so we're really excited about that.
0: What's your favorite Battle of Menti soundtrack for Lynch? I think
1: And it has to be, it has to be Twin Peaks. Yeah. For sure. Um, I would say a tie between Laura Palmer's theme and falling. And then I really love the, uh, the piece that he did. I think it's called Heartbreak. It's a new, it's a piano piece uh, for the new season. It's a really beautiful piece that has a kind of a Morricone type of feel. Yeah. But something, something interesting, too, that uh, people don't know is that when Nick Reffin flew to Montreal to show me the film at Technicolor for Drive, the opening credits in the pink letters said music by Angelo Bellamente. There was a version where they were trying to have him also work on it, but uh, never materialized.
0: Holy shit. Yeah. Man. That'd be amazing. I'm, I'm wondering, was it was it like the opening, that opening theme to Mulholland Drive or something? That would have been incredible.
1: I know. Mulho- Mulholland, Drive. Mulholland Drive is probably my second. But, uh, yeah, I was very curious about that, but there was very little information.
0: Oh, man. No. I love his It's So Slept On, his soundtrack for The Straight Story. I find that Soundtrack just totally heartbreaking and beautiful.
1: I've never seen that. I need to <gasps> see
0: that. Oh my god! Yeah, check. It's like um, it's like his country album or something. It's almost like lots of kind of fiddle and violin, and but with the same, almost like Warren Ellis playing violin for in the Angelo Badalamenti universe. Is probably the best way I can pitch it. That
1: sounds awesome. There's a, several films that that's one of the ones on my list that I absolutely need to see.
0: There's a no spoilers. There's one scene where Harry Dean Stanton delivers a monologue, and it's just absolutely incredible.
1: Okay, let's leave it at that.
0: Yeah. Sold. Oh, and fa- let's end on this since we're geeking out over soundtracks. What is your favorite Tangerine Dream soundtrack?
1: Well, the Love on a Real Train is just incredible piece of music. Um, I think the music I find myself listening to the most often from them, Sorcerer or Thief. Yeah. That was cool to play with them. We just played with them in South by Southwest.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Megan told me. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. We did a panel uh, with them at the Austin Film School.
0: Wow. How amazing.
1: Yeah, that was great.
0: There's a really strange section on the Risky Business blu-ray there's a commentary between the director i think david geffen and tom cruise and it's just really interesting hearing tom cruise wax lyrical about the beauty of tangerine dreams music on the soundtrack and stuff it's it's kind of it's kind of weird to imagine what music tom cruise would listen to anyway but hearing him talk about tangerine dream was really strange and
1: what's the commentary on bob seeger
0: Oh, <laughs> I forget that. I think that was, I think that was just Geffen's, I think Geffen had that from his label maybe. So that was just like a, a free needle drop, I think. Yeah. But yeah, just Tom Cruise listening to ethereal kraut rock is kind of a an amazing concept for me to imagine.
1: Well, wonderful music, you know, there for everyone.
0: Yeah. This has been such a pleasure talking to you. I've been such a fan for uh, such a long time.
1: Are you going to come to the show?
0: Yes. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully we can say hi in person then.
1: Yeah, I'd love that.
0: Great. Thanks again for talking. I appreciate your time. Yeah, cheers. Take care, buddy. Thank you. That was me and Johnny Jewel. Special thanks to Meltdown Festival for setting that up for us. And you can see Johnny Jewell perform his soundtrack work at the South Bank this month in June. Okay, that's it from me. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Joshua Eustace, aka Telefon Tel Aviv, for the beautiful music. And we will speak soon.